0: Welcome back, baseball fans, to episode 23 of the Banish to the Pen podcast, the audio component of the website Banish to the Pen, a group baseball blog produced by the fans of the Effectively Wild podcast. I am your host, Ryan Sullivan, editor-in-chief of NetsGM.com and the baron of all baseball podcasts. This week, I am excited to be joined by members of the Banish to the Pen crew and returning members of this podcast, Ben Suisa and Scott Kushner. Welcome back, guys. Yes, good to be back. It's good to have you guys back. Uh, we were having some good banter off air, so I'm very excited to get you guys on the horn and have you back this week. So, uh, first place I want to start is kind of where we start every week. I know you guys have been on the show before, but uh, it's been a little bit, so let's, let's have you guys reintroduce yourselves. Let's go. Uh, we'll start with alphabetical order. How about that uh, first name? Ben, how about you uh, re, uh, reacquaint everybody with yourself? You know, Twitter,
1: fandom, day job, all that good stuff. Sure, Ryan. Yeah, I'm glad to be back, for starters. So, I am 22 years old, and I've been a baseball fan for a while now. I'm university, still a university student, so not in that real world yet. Um, but I've been doing some writing when I can. I've sort of been on a writer's block last few weeks and busy with school stuff, but typically I'm on banish to the Pen. You can find me on Twitter at Suisa, that's B-S-U-I-S-S-A, and on fantasyinsidershow.com for some fantasy stuff. And I'm hoping to pump out some more material in the next few weeks as well to make up for, my, make up for some lost time. Yeah, we definitely miss your,
0: uh, miss your writing the last couple of weeks. So hopefully uh, we get you back on the grind when the school uh, allows you. So, uh, Scott, kind of same question.
2: Yeah, uh, my name is Scott Kushner. I'm uh, 34 years old. Man, I wish I was back in my 20s. Uh, 34 yeah. years old, uh, recently had a, uh, a baby girl, two-month-old daughter. That gives me one son and one daughter, so I've, I've finished my collection. Um, I'm, a, I'm the head baseball coach at Centenary College in Hackettstown, New Jersey, and um, I've done some running for Vantage to the Pen. I haven't done it for a little while because the season kind of ate me up for a bit, but I'm hoping to put some more, some more out soon. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at SL underscore Cush, A-U-S-H,
0: very cool since we've had you on the show I've got to ask uh, how'd the season go and uh, fill us in on centenary baseball
2: well uh, it, it was a little bittersweet this year uh, we had very high hopes if you if recall the last time uh, I think we spoke in, in uh, mid-February right before the season kicked off uh, we had some really high hopes hope to have about a 750 winning percentage um, and we actually started off that way had a really hot start best start in uh, program history and uh, and then we just hit a lull uh, once we Came back up north after our spring trip down in Florida, um, and had a, had a couple of rough weekends where we ended up still ended up above 500, uh, finished at 17 and 15. But uh, our, our ultimate goal of, of winning the conference championship, we fell short. So it was, it was pretty bittersweet. I Had a very veteran team of, of seniors, and uh, so I was really you know hoping to win it. You know, obviously it feels good to win it as a coach, but I was really hoping them. and uh, so it was, it was definitely a, a bitter pill to swallow. Uh, but we had some great individual performances. Was able to coach my first uh, All-American this year. Uh, is actually a, a draft hopeful, um, so we're we're very excited for the next couple of days to hopefully hear his name uh, called or at least see it on, uh, on MLB's page.
0: So I'm guessing you're on the recruiting trail. If you've got 19 seniors, you're losing.
2: Yeah, I mean, 19, 19 seniors. You, you can't replace that. Uh, that's the kind of thing where where, honestly, our, our roster was way bigger than it normally is. I expect it to drop about, by. we had 42 players on the roster this year. Uh, I'm more comfortable with it being around 30 to 35, uh, and we'll be closer to 30 to 35 this year. Um, so I am you know, I don't expect to, to fill them all, all those holes, um, at least not in one recruiting season. And even if I'm out there pounding the pavement now, uh, we play before any of the guys that I'd see this summer would be, be on the roster. So we got to be able to go to battle with what we have coming back freshman we got coming in.
0: Okay, well I'm sure we'll have you on before next season, but uh, how are things shaping up for next year?
2: Uh, you know, it's it's a great question. Uh, I'll know a lot more in the fall. That's when we, you know, the first time we get everybody together uh, and, uh, you know, all the young players we you hope that they've gone through a lot of uh, physical and mental maturing in the last year, and then uh, the freshmen that come in, you never quite know how they're going to compete with the, uh, the returners. So, you know, by October, I'll have a much better uh, vision of, of what we're capable of doing. But it's it's going to be so many fresh new faces at all the positions that, uh, you know, uh, you just, just don't know what they're capable of right now. There's talent, but it's young talent and, it, and uh, you know, relatively inexperienced talent. So it, it can go a lot of different ways.
0: Okay, so I hear you guaranteeing a conference championship. Good to yeah, hear. You all it. right, yeah. good. Good yeah. to hear. So... Uh, Well, that's good to hear. I'm sorry about the uh, one loss record, but uh, it is nice to hear some of the individual achievements anyways. So uh, I I do want to now transition to uh, some baseball talk, if I can, or at least a major league talk. Uh, Ben brought this up kind of off air, uh, and and I think it's a good place to start this week. Unfortunately, it's a tough topic, and uh, I I don't know how to introduce it more than just saying uh, the – I guess it was a young woman. I I think she was a mother – who was hit at Fenway Park the other night with, with the bat from, I, I believe it was Brett Laurie. Um, first, uh, I hope everything's going well with her, and I hope she a speedy recovery. I think we heard that she's going to make it recover, so uh, I, I want to put that out there first and foremost, just, you know, obviously, I think that goes without saying, but that said, uh, so now, Ben, I, I want to, after saying that, I want to give you the floor a little bit here and uh, kind of let you introduce the topic and go from there.
1: Sure. Yeah, and and I feel like even even myself, I have to say, you know, all all, all uh, you no know, good feelings, and and we're all glad that you know the woman's a lot, doing much better now than was uh, basically initially reported, but it, it it basically comes to this sort of like you know polarizing discussion of do we need netting, do we need not do we need not need netting, and so a lot of the thought I was thinking of was it, a lot of the people who you know you often see sitting in that area are typically these diehard baseball fans. They're not a lot of the, you know, the business, the executive tickets that, you know, you might get from, uh, you know, you work at a bank or something and they, you know, they take their clients out a lot of that sort of more in the, in the boxes area. So you're not exactly in this sort of right in front of the action in the danger zone, if you will. So having said that, you know, I, I do feel for the woman, um, and, and it's hard to specifically say that everyone in that area, you know, these are all diehard fans, but I think a lot of it is that. And if you're willing to, you know, if you're that much of a fan, you know, you presumably, you know, want to, you know, be closer to the action and that does come with a price tag. And it's, it's, it's really just terrible when things like this happen. Um, but I, but I, I would think that a lot of people would be willing to sort of take on that risk, you know, in exchange for, you know, quality seats being, you know, that much closer and, you know, smelling the, you know, back sweat.
0: (laughs) Scott, what do you think before I chime in?
2: Yeah, I, um, you know, as with anything, whenever you go to a a baseball field in particular, I mean, you're, you're not really in danger. If you go to a a football game or a basketball game or, you know, maybe hockey, I guess they, they had this issue with, with the pucks leaving the, uh, the ice a, a few years back. But, um, know certainly there is some risk inherent in it and and if you're going to get those front row seats you you have to be aware that said i think i think we're fooling ourselves if we think that a fan even the most vigilant of fans um can keep their eyes on the action at all times you know there's something will distract you especially if you're there with children and i do see a lot of children in in the in the front row seats when i was a kid you know as much as we could we try and go down and get as close to the action as possible And, and sometimes it's unavoidable um, but I also think it's, it's very rare that these things happen. Uh, I don't know if, if Major League Baseball keeps stats on how often a ball or a bat enters or leaves the field of play and actually strikes someone and injures them. But I would like to think that it's, we don't get a, a huge knee-jerk reaction that, oh, we got to now completely circle the field with, with extra nets. Um, but it might be something that they extend a little bit just to – find a happy medium between safety and panic. Uh,
0: uh, and I want to say this as it's going to come off as insensitive as I can, but I'm trying to say this as sensitively as I can. I'm surprised that this hasn't happened yet. And, th- and I'm sure that it has, but uh, this is really the first time I can recall that somebody's had life-endangered you know, endangered injuries with this, that I can re- on this type of stage. And I'm really amazed. I-, I spend more time at the minor league parks than the major league parks, but How close the fans are to home plate, even if you are paying attention, if it's a rocket shot off the bat, you're still going to have a heck of a time protecting yourself. And that's just a baseball, a bat coming into the stands. I mean, that's a real weapon. I I don't want to say this the wrong way, but I'm surprised that this hasn't happened more often or before to, to a large degree. It's amazing to me how close these seats are.
1: Yeah, it really is. But so, and I feel I'm sort of with you, Ryan. Like, we're kind of playing the villain here a little bit, which is that's this sort of perspective we're taking. But my, my other question would be, like, you know, where does it really end? I was at a Jays game a few weeks ago, and when you see balls being pulled down the line or, you know, or even, you know, going the other way, whether you have time to react or not, if that ball's coming off, you know, 110 miles an hour you really don't have time to react anyway. And I know it's not a shard of a bat, but it's a ball, you know, getting rocketed directly, you know, in that direction, as hard as it can possibly be hit. And, you know, do we need fences down the down the third baseline, down the first baseline? Like I don't I don't think there's any talk of that. And like and like we're still talking about really rare occurrences, right? So it might take, you know, like a couple a sequence of two, you know, severe injuries of balls that direction to maybe sway the conversation that way. Do we need more protection in other areas of the field too right
0: and can i and i i don't want to add once again i don't want to ask this the wrong way but in hockey that young lady and i believe her name was britney cecil passed on she she died unfortunately from that injury and then the nhl then kind of put up a lot more netting and and tried to make it a little more safe for the fan experience Uh, what if the lady in boston if she had passed would that change this discussion i mean would we then absolutely be pounding the table to put more fencing in rather than
2: I don't think there's any doubt that that would have changed the discussion, and um, obviously a death takes it to a whole other level. Um, but I guess the other the other part of it is, you know, and I, I realize that a lot of the people who will be listening to this podcast are probably opponents of of netting, um, but but really, what do you lose as a fan having a little extra netting? I I understand that there is now a barrier. But if you've ever sat like right behind home plate at a baseball game, I think that there's a it's a pretty special uh, vantage point and closeness to the to the game to the field, and I don't know that people feel like they're being cheated at all because they have to look through you know uh, a, a bit of of twine to do it. So I don't know that I don't know that it's that extreme to add netting. And really, the turning points are going to be once the lawyers get involved. Yeah,
0: that that's a great point, Scott. You know, yeah, it's,
2: it's, we can talk about whether it weighs on our conscience or not, and the team whether they want it on, on you know, in their PR department. But the fact of the matter is, if, if this woman had passed or or the little girl with the hockey, you know, as soon as they become uh, liable, and someone in a court of law determines that they, you know, should have been able to prevent this, and as a result, they now have to pay out money. That's really where this is going to go. Um, if if major league baseball is not is not uh, proactive,
0: and, and I'd love to ask this question to you both because I, I know I go to a ton of games, but I'm always sitting behind the netting, you know, behind the plate, you know, with a radar gun doing my scouting thing. But I, I wouldn't sit right behind, just off the plate without netting. I, I wouldn't. I would feel uncomfortable the whole game. Uh, coach, I know you're in a dugout all the time, Ben. I'm, I know you go to games. Uh, which do you guys feel safe if you're right there, first couple rows, and
1: there's no netting? I, I certainly don't.
2: Absolutely not. It's terrifying. Uh,
1: yeah, it, it's a little scary, and it, it, the funny thing is, like, with the the Rogers Center has netting, and I flinch. Like, I've only sat there once, and I obviously was flinching every time with the netting. You I mean? And that's and that's the case with any sort of you know, like, some velocity coming at you or something is about to hit you. You're always supposed to flinch. But yeah, I know it's a, it's a little dangerous, but. And I, and I agree with what Scott was saying. It's, you know, maybe if you had, you know, really thick netting or something, that might, you know, prohibit your vision a little bit. But we're we're kind of splitting hairs a little bit with, you know, like how much does it impair your vision, and you know, does that really change the experience that much? I think it changes it somewhat, but, you know, like I said, it's maybe it's a small loss for the fan.
2: If, if they were to do it now, or if they'd done it five years ago, fans right now wouldn't even notice.
1: No, you know, exactly. it's, it's
2: always that you you know about it when the change is occurring or just before the change occurs. But if if they if Major League Baseball installed increased netting, you know, along the lines off of the backstop, uh, in a year or two, most fans wouldn't even recognize that things had been different. Uh, I can tell you that both being in a dugout, um, and and also I like I'll coach the bases as well, which you know is roughly equivalent to being in. the... Stands in the first couple rows in terms of distance from home plate, and and there will be some hot shots where now I'm a you know still somewhat nimble uh athletic person who is paying close attention and knows very well where you know who's likely to hit it in my direction, and there are still some balls that are fouled down the line towards me that that I almost take my head off, um and I am on my feet able to move quickly you're sitting in the stands and you might be a small child, an elderly person, or even someone that's perfectly fit, while you're sitting there static with no place to go, um, I, you have no shot of getting out of the way. And the balls have movement. Even if you think, oh, I'll see it coming and I'll, I'll duck to one side or the other, these balls are slicing, they're moving, they're coming off the bat with odd spin. You have no way of telling where that ball is going to go. And it's, it's just gut instinct and you... Hope that you, you guess correctly.
0: Okay, so have we properly just clubbed the fact that teams haven't put in the netting yet? I, I guess we're kind of in agreement. I guess so. So when does it happen? I guess is mm-hmm. the I guess to wrap up the conversation. When do we see these teams start putting in? And I don't think we're going to see it all the way down the lines, but it, probably you know maybe past the dugouts or or at least to the first part of the dugout. When do we see that happen?
1: It doesn't seem like a huge expense, really. So this year, probably. If that's not. If that's too vague.
2: I don't know. I'll, I'll put it this way. I think. I think first we wait to see what the lady who got hit says. I mean, I'm assuming that she's going to have some sort of, a, you know, there's going to be interview with her or something like that. You know, how are you doing? That kind of thing. And it'd be very interesting to see what her take is on it. Um, because if she's pushing for it, and it kind of creates a groundswell beyond what has already been created. The other thing is, now we're all going to be very hyper-aware the next time it happens. It happens, you know, within the next few, couple of weeks, let's say. So if someone else should get hit with a foul ball, with a broken bat, something like that, uh, it's one of those things where, because of the recency of the, of the previous incident, um, now it, it would just be, oh, well, maybe this really is becoming an issue. Like, like the way that pitchers getting line drives off the head has become an issue to the point where the whole padded hats and all that kind of stuff came about um you know it'll become a bigger conversation
0: yeah and I, and I think i know the answer to this but i'm curious to see if those seats that are you know right in that danger zone and we'll call that and we can define that however you want i i wonder if those seats start seeing fewer people in them because of this either short term or long term
2: i i don't know i feel like as a fan if you saw that those seats were available you might you know there's all i think there's somebody who's going to want to take them uh it might become cheaper but i think someone wants to be out there in the front row
0: I mean, that's the other way that we could see those seats all of a sudden covered up in netting is if fans don't want them anymore because they don't feel safe.
2: Right.
1: Maybe there's some unwritten rules there that Dred Lowry is following. like <laughs> Hospital visits with chocolates or flowers. I don't know.
0: <laughs> uh, okay, Scott, now I'm going yeah. to tag you in. Uh, you had a good suggestion for a couple a couple things you wanted to, to discuss this week. and. I think we have a difference of opinion just from the little banter off air. So I'm going to start with uh, the designated hitter.
2: Okay, so I, I like to play devil's advocate on on just about any any topic, and I know that the uh, you know kind of the, the mainstream thinking now, at least among you know our listeners, is probably that let's let's get rid of the the you know charade that is pitchers hitting, and let's put a real professional athlete in there for the ninth spot. Um, and I, I grew up as an AL guy, certainly, you know, like the DH in that regard. But I, I must say, I think there's a couple of things that I'm, you know, le- kind of enjoy about having the pitchers hit. Uh, and, and I know that this these are some of these are kind of um, retread ideas of, of the strategy and doing double switches and those sort of things. I won't, I won't spend much time on that. Um, but I, I think that there is a certain element in, in sports in general where – uh, the context of the players and the mismatch sometimes adds a level of enjoyment and complexity and tension that um, that if you didn't have that context, it, it, it just you just wouldn't it wouldn't be as rich of a sport. So, so for instance, um, if if I just told you a great pitcher was facing a great hitter, okay, that's that's wonderful, um, and you don't know if there's a a, a favorite or or an underdog. But as soon as you put a name on that pitcher and say, hey, it's Clayton Kershaw on the mound and it's you know and, and choose your, choose your hitter, uh, you know it could be uh, Mike Trout or something like that, you know you feel like those two guys are at the top of their game. That's going to be a great a great matchup. But as soon as you start to separate the two in terms of their talent level and you have one guy who's clearly better than the other guy, you know that they are I mean, the, the, the superior player is probably going to come out ahead way more often than not. But those rare occasions when the underdog does come through, I think really is is kind of what sports are all about. Because otherwise, you just sim it all, right? Um, which, you know, why, why actually play the games if not to have an opportunity for someone to surprise you, uh, for someone to perform beyond what you expect? So, you know, we can laugh at it all we want. And I know that somebody just posted uh, Bartolo Colon standing there and had the bat on his shoulder for three strikes. When Bartolo Colon knocks in an RBI double in a game that's meaningful, the shock of that moment to me is—I don't know—it's something I don't, don't want to miss out on. And and pitchers in general, you don't expect anything from them other than a strikeout or maybe a sacrifice bunt. But when they do come through in those sort of situations, I don't know—it's it's very enjoyable moment for me. And and then it also puts on, of course, the manager to have to make that tough decision of, do I go with this heavily? Um, is heavy underdog on my side or do I make a a pitching change and, and turn it over to my bullpen who maybe I don't have as much confidence on the mound for. So there's that strategic element as well. Go ahead. Tear me apart.
1: Ben, go ahead. Yeah. So no, I I agree with a lot of what you're saying. And, and so for me, I'm pro DH. I'll I'll make the stance now, but the, so there's two parts of baseball. I like, there's like the exciting and, you know, like this watching skills and, you know, the top talent of a sport. And then there's the fun part. So I, I think, so Scott, what you were saying, the, the basically the underdog story. So for me, that's the fun or the funny part. So seeing guys like Bartolo go up there and like swing and their helmets fall off, like that's fun for me. I like watching that stuff. And I, you know, I like following, you know, John Lester. You know, never, probably will never ever get a hit. You know, I guess Ben Revere homered once in his career or twice. So I guess maybe Lester will eventually get one, but it seems improbable. But that's so that's more of the fun angle of it, seeing guys that, yeah, like they, like you said, they really shouldn't be hitting. They shouldn't, like they have probably never practiced swinging bats like this. Maybe they did in high school, but not doing that anymore. And I guess what I'm saying is, the skill and the and the sheer talent of it sort of supersedes that a little bit, because maybe the funny parts of it of, of seeing Bartolo swing, you know, doesn't last forever, whereas. I want to keep seeing, you know, big sluggers who, you know, maybe can't run the bases as well or, you know, can't, you know, play the field at all. Basically get more opportunities to hit. Um, and, and, and then, you know, I'm sure we're going to segue into this, so I, I might as well kick it off. But, you know, basically getting another element. We've seen so many pitcher pitcher injuries in the last few years. And basically offering them another opportunity to spend time on the disabled list. I remember a game, you know, maybe like a half dozen years ago. Um, the Jays were in an NL stadium, and Scott Downs was up to bat. I don't know. This is probably just a deep Jays reference. But he basically swung at a pitch, hit a ground ball, and just ran a first. He, you know, he wasn't basically sprinting as hard as he could, probably just, you know, jogging, maybe a, a, a brisk jog, if you will. And ends up tripping over the base. You know, there was it wasn't even a bang bang play really. He just basically completely wiped out and spent you know notable time on a table list. And 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 like just like, similar to the netting issue, like these these are pretty rare occurrences. But I think any way to eliminate kind of injuries is another element that kind of supersedes the the funny pitchers hitting. Yeah, that's I, what, probably why I'm pretty age.
0: Uh, I'm going to build off ben, uh, Ben's point. point, first of all, with the, with the injuries. I think that kind of goes without saying. I, I know just here in Washington, we lost uh, Sean Hill basically for his career diving back into third base, you know, on a routine play, you know, on the base paths. But I, I have more of a problem with it. I grew up an AL guy. I mean, I was an Orioles fan before the Nationals got here, and I, I was always a big fan of the pitchers hitting. I thought that was great. And now that I've spent... I guess this is now the 11th year of watching National League baseball. You know, kind of diehard like. Uh, I'm kind of tired of watching. I thought there was more strategy with having the pitchers hit. Now i've i've turned the i've turned the other way. I think there's less strategy, frankly, in it. I, I'm tired of watching the eighth hole hitter get walked so that you can pitch to the ninth hole hitter with two outs. And uh, the pinch hitting is so obvious when the guys are going to come in. And, and I'm just. I'm, I'd rather see a good hitter in there. I'd rather see the same game being played throughout. I don't think there's anything of this retaliation with pitchers fearing to throw at guys because they might be up to bat next. I don't believe that's there. I think we've even proven it at Baseball Perspectives. I think one of the great writers proved that. So I just I, – the offense is down so much in the game. The pitching is so much better than it was 10 years ago. I think this is one way to try to get the offense up a little bit. I think it's time to play the same game and – I'd almost like to see new strategy of how guys would use their bench in in an American League style all the way through with four or five guys and how they would platoon or pinch hit or the other moves that they would make. It, that type of a strategy instead. So, uh, I guess I'll throw it back to Scott now.
2: After I've kind of yeah, we've clubbed no, him a little bit. So yeah, no, no, no. Listen, I mean, obviously, what, what you guys say makes, makes a lot of sense, and and it's, it's hard to really um, disagree with some of that stuff. Uh, I guess I would look at it as uh, again, kind of looking at the the romantic side of the game. I know Ben, you said kind of the fun and funny side of the game, and maybe Bartolo Colon wasn't my best um, example that I should have brought up. He, yes, he is comical.
0: Actually, but... I disagree. I think he's your best example because we got to keep Bartolo hitting. <laughs> yeah. I want him. Well, I, I, <laughs> the end. I,
2: I don't know. That there's been a um, can't miss at bat like Bartolo or or maybe Harper earlier this year. Um, I mean, equally, I, if Harper was hitting, I want to watch him. If Martello was hitting, I want to watch him. Um, and they couldn't be on on the opposite ends of the spectrum. But, um, but I would say, kind of the romantic side is, I like the idea that you that a baseball team is comprised of flawed humans. You know, like it's it is that's why we measure everything, is we want to know all these guys' strengths and weaknesses, and and that's kind of where all the statistical um, uh, push has come from, is to try and put uh, a, a more refined uh, concept behind what these flawed people are capable of doing or not capable of doing. And so having a pitcher hit is clearly you're putting a flawed human being up to the bat, uh, up to the plate with, with a skill that he's not particularly adept at uh, typically. And, uh, but by the same token, is it really that much different than when you put um, uh, a, a, a fielder in the field who is clearly just there for his bat And, you know, I I think like Hanley in left field right now, I mean, he's having all kinds of trouble on defense and, and he, I mean, he's a phenomenal athlete, all that kind of stuff, but he's, he's clearly there as an offensive force and the Red Sox have to make the strategic decision to either play him and suffer the consequences on defense or not play him or put him at a different position um, and, and sacrifice a little bit in their lineup. And, and basically that's the same sort of thing. Um, not that I think baseball would go this way, but I guess going to the strictly to the DH, obviously, it would, it would just stay as put. But I feel like that's a step towards um, getting closer to uh, one of the hypotheticals that I think that Ben and Sam have talked about on, on effectively Wild, which is an all offensive and all defensive team, which I would be interested in watching. But it's not really. I mean, I, I, Kind of like the idea of baseball that you have the guy's strength. You have to deal with the guy's strength and weakness. You don't just get to have Anderson Simmons play defense. You also have to have him in your lineup. And for a while, that was a tough trade-off. Um, and and each guy kind of brings a little bit of that that hot and cold to the table.
1: Ben. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying because when like the fundamentals of baseball, you, when you hit the ball, you catch the ball, you run the bases, right? And it doesn't make sense to have everybody do that. And, yeah, I guess a lot of what I said was about it being fun. And whereas there is some – it's more than just fun to see pitchers hit sometimes. You know, I remember last year, I remember seeing Bumgarner hit this really big – I guess it was not only a big, it wasn't a, a big grand slam, it was a like pretty meaningful one in the, in the game too. And I guess I, I wasn't really laughing at that. That was more, wow, like, you know, pretty big home run for a pitcher. Yeah. Um, and then there's other guys, too. I, I, I remember reading a Jeff, Jeff Sullivan post over at Fangraphs like a, maybe like a year ago or something, or talking about Zach Greinke and basically what he's done as a pitcher, you know, defying the odds of pitcher hitting and being able to actually have plate discipline, whereas a lot of the, you know, home run hitting pitchers like Wood and Baumgartner primarily, you know, that's, that's their, their one asset of what they – you know, what they can do compared to other pitchers at the plate, whereas, like, Greinke's kind of got the plate discipline and he can walk and, and you know, connect on pitches out of the strike zone too. So that's, I guess it's another, it's basically another another tool, another, like, facet of the game that, yeah, you, know, you can analyze and there's definitely nothing wrong with that.
0: But uh, the final point I'd like to make is I, I do think it's it's an unfair advantage for the American League as well. We're now seeing that the designated hitter is being used almost as much as a a rest day for a lot of these guys. Or if you've got a nagging injury but you can still hit, you can play that position. I mean, the Yankees kind of come to mind first and foremost. The National League doesn't have that same advantage. And now with greenies out of the game and steroids out of the game, supposedly, and everything else, I I do think the American League has got an advantage of being able to rest their players – and still have them play rather than in the national league where you've got to play them in the field. I think that the fatigue factor has got to be somewhere in there as well. I think there's a definite disadvantage to the national league.
2: No question. That's why we got to take out the DH for the American
0: league. Now, okay. If you wanted to talk about that, okay. Now that now you yeah. got your play, Now you got your even playing field. Now, if you wanted to go to that argument, we might have a whole nother 10 minute discussion here. Uh, uh, I, that I might be able to get behind if both no, leagues play I, this. I, I'm, I think I'm
2: not in favor. when I when I make this stand. You know, anti DH. I, I guess I mean it for for the entirety of baseball. I, I don't I don't like as much as it's it's uh it's fun to have an AL and a and, and NL be different. Um, I think you're right. You want them to have to play the same game. Uh, and in that way, you know, whether you go all DH or whether you go all no DH, I, I like I like it being.
0: I mean, I just don't like it being a factor in free agency. These pitchers are like, well, I'm going to face nine legitimate hitters if I stay in the American League, but I can face eight if I go to the National League. I mean, the, yeah. there's I mean, there's a reason we saw so many pitchers uh, this winter go from the AL to the NL. It's a lot easier. Right. And, and
2: I mean, that has repercussions as far as contracts. It has repercussions. I mean, how, how many times do you have to, um, you know, translate a, a pitcher's stats? For where he was, and now what league is he moving? You know, an NL guy going to the AL is going to see his his numbers balloon, and and vice versa. You got a guy like Scherzer who's dominating, um, you know, who, who carved up the AL, and now he gets to go pick on the NL. All
0: right. Well, that uh, I think we could have wrapped that up quicker if we had just gotten to that point. But uh, I like the conversation. <laughs> so, uh, in, in all all kidding aside, another topic I wanted to talk about, and and I don't know where the writing was, but it was there was a good column somewhere out there. Uh, about signs and, and, you know, kind of giving and sending a, on the field. And I thought it was a good place to start with, with having a coach here. I thought he could kind of enlighten certainly me. I, I don't know, kind of uh, besides, you know, indicator and, you know, touching your arm, sometimes that might be a thing. So, uh, Scott, once again, I'm going to turn it to you if I can and have you introduce where the piece came from because I'm blanking on it and to uh, kind you know, of start I, the I, lead I discussion.
2: Know there was a uh, one particular piece that, on, I was actually um, thinking of doing a little something for Vanishing the Pen uh, to post in, in the future on, on some of the things that we do with my team. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to insult anybody's intelligence on, on the signs, and I'm sure anybody who, who played is, is, you know, as low as Little League probably had a, you know, if the coach touches his cap, that's the indicator, and whatever follows the indicator, that's the hot sign. So if I touch my cap and my arm, you know, sleeve means steal and belt means bunt, Um, and that was kind of your basic sign. And I, and I don't, you know, I don't think that, that, that you have to overcomplicate it too much. Um, but you can sometimes have roving indicators where, you know, it can be anything from the neck or above, or it can be, uh, my indicator for one inning is going to be my arm. And then the next inning is going to be my leg or the next inning it'll be on my chest. So you can have that coaches will sometimes use an open close system. So an open-closed system would be something where, you know, there's a there's – a, let's say it's a, an ear or a hat or, or maybe just a hot zone that anything that I would touch or, or give prior to going to that open system, uh, that open part, uh, doesn't mean anything. So, you know, belt could mean bunt, but it doesn't mean bunt until I've opened it up with my cap. So it's kind of like an indicator. However, once I've gone to my cap it now – The signs are open or hot. Uh, Now if I go to belt, the bunt is on as long as I close it back up. So the close might be my ear. So if I touch my arm, my leg, my chest, my cap, now it's hot. I touch my belt, my chest, my leg, my ear, it's closed. I go back to my arm. Because I opened it, gave the bunt sign, and closed it, that bunt is live. I never close it, or if I give a wipe off, then it's dead. Um, so that's that's an open-close system.
0: Now, how um, often are you changing your signs? Is it within the game? Is it every other game? How often are you changing the signs?
2: Well, you know, um, our offensive signs and 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 defensive signs for that matter are are very different. So I, I don't, I'll I'll say I'll put that to the side for right now. Um, but if you have if you have signs, typically now. Keep in mind, I'm a I'm a college coach. We don't get to work with these guys 24 seven, basically like like a major league team does. But uh, but you know, you might change it within a game. Uh, typically though, you'll you'll keep it. I mean, your signs are kind of your signs, and you don't want confusion. See, I I look at signs as having to be you know, there's got to be a couple qualities to them. One is they have to be clear. You have your, your players have to know what sign you're giving them. Because you could have very confusing signs that the other team can't pick, which is another factor that they can't be pickable. But if they're unpickable but also unreadable by your players, what good has it done? Um, If they're so simple that your players know them, but so does the other team, what good has it done? So, and I think kind of a third factor in that is they have to be communicated quickly. Um, In Major League Baseball, they take a little bit more time, but obviously speed of pace of play is important. So you don't want it to be, a, you know, I got to go through a, a 15 different touches that I want you to steal. Uh, I got to be able to do that r- rather quickly to keep the pace of the play going. Um, but if you feel like the other team's on you, you might be in the dugout in between innings and say, "Hey, listen, guys, indicators change, or we're going to go away from our open-close system and we're going to go to something, something else." Um, and sometimes it can be as simple as a misdirection. I could do all the touches on my cheek and my ear my nose and my cap, and none of that means a thing. And then if my hands are on my hips, that means I want you to steal. And if I got one hand with a fist, that means I want you to bunt. So it could be that you completely – the signs are all just misdirection. Um, and then the thing that we do for our team is we actually – we've kind of borrowed from from college football uh, and, and, and really professional football now is we use wristbands. Um, so you'll see, you see it a lot with catchers now where they'll get the signs from the dugout and they'll look on their wristband and we've actually incorporated that to our offense um, so it's I can give a, a sign a verbal sign that my base runners know what the sign is without even having to look at me because they can just hear me they take a quick peek at their wristband and now they, I can tell them something very specific uh, because the wristband can be as detailed as I want it to be and, and now they know, everybody knows exactly what it is. It took, it took two seconds to communicate, and there's no confusion. And it's unpickable because the other team doesn't have my wristband.
0: And I've seen that actually with catchers recently. I, I noticed Maryland's uh, catcher a uh, couple of days ago was doing that same thing, almost yeah, right, yeah. like in football.
2: It, it, it's, it's happened a lot more with pitch calling. Um, I mean, we've been doing it with, with pitch calling probably for the last six years. Um where our, our catchers have a wristband, and, and it's, it goes through uh, an evolution in how we design it and how we communicate it. Uh, this year we actually had guys in our dugout holding up huge uh, placards with with numbers on them, <laughs> uh, you know, three digits, and those cards could indicate anything from a pitch to a pickoff to a timing of uh, how long we want pitchers holding their pitch, you know, like uh, coming set before they deliver a pitch to throw off base runners. Uh, to just being a dummy sign or a bunk coverage, it could have, you know, it could cover any of those things. And as far as the other team knows, we're just putting up numbers, and they, you know, and even if they write them all down, we can change it mid-game. We just change out a card after a couple innings, and now, you know, the number that was a fastball up and in now means we want to pick off the first base. You know, it changed that way. So that's that's why I like the cards. Is, is they're 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 dead simple from the player standpoint. Uh, and you get a lot of information communicated very quickly without the other team being able to clue in on what you're doing.
0: And I've got one more question before I'll let uh, ben, uh, ben chime in here. But are we going to see that more at the major league level? Because I feel like I've noticed just in the last, just this season, I've noticed a lot more right. infielders, you know, coming into the pitcher and the catcher and changing signs that, uh, you know, the Absolutely. guys at second and third base are getting the signs from, you know, on the base. I don't
2: think there's any question. I mean, I, I think that. You were seeing the the wristbands for the catchers. You were seeing a few years ago in college baseball. I feel like I can you see a few now in the major league level, which you know, a lot of times college baseball is, is kind of a, a a guinea pig or or you know a, a lab that can can move up to major league baseball um, in, in much the same way that that college football is for for the NFL. Um, We've got a lot more teams. They can all experiment. Uh, but I, I definitely would think that Major League Baseball, at least with, with pitch calling, would go that, that route. Um, we have our, our infielders also wear the cards so that they know what pitch is coming. So they don't need to even go into the pitcher and, and have that discussion. They're getting the information as soon as the catcher is getting the information. They're already on the same page. But, yeah, I, I, I have no doubt that, that that's something that's coming down the line.
0: Yeah, because I've noticed that just a ton in the last couple of weeks of, of particularly the Nationals, you know, coming in and changing their signs mid at bat because you know they think the guy's second is stealing the is stealing the signs. So, sure.
2: and uh, and nothing nothing prevents you from using, you know, when you're talking like pitcher catcher, nothing prevents a pitcher and catcher from going to the old standards of using one two three or tapping shin guards and face masks. Um, you can always still go to that, um, but. This is just another way of it's more communicating it from the dugout to the players, as opposed to from the player to the player.
1: Uh, ben, you have any questions? Yeah, like it, honestly, I'm so I've never really played organized baseball. I guess inside from my my slow paced softball league, we don't really have many signs.
2: If you <laughs> can imagine.
1: Yeah, but it, it really seems under, easy to understand that, you know, once in a while in a game you'll see, you know, like David Ortiz. Getting caught, you know, halfway to second base because whoever the hitter was, you know, forgot to forgot to play hit run or something like that. Right. But so I guess it, it, it's weird saying, like, no, I'm not saying it, there's often miscues, but presumably a, a good amount of miscues. Um, and the other thing I wanted to bring up was, you know, being a Jays fan, there was there was a rumor, you know, a, a year ago or maybe it was a couple of years ago now, about Jays stealing catcher signs. Basically from like a center field, you know, binoculars or something I don't know like that. About
2: that.
1: Yeah. So, you think, do you think that's a worry? Maybe that's not as much in college, but I wonder if teams actually have people, you know, and this is this goes right into Ben and Sam's unwritten rules, probably as a as a nine or ten out of, out of ten. Uh, but people actually looking for signs and trying to pick up things intentionally, you know, as, as opposed to maybe just a fielder glancing over to see, you know, if if the guy's running or not?
2: Well, I I mean, I think it definitely happens. And, and I've always found it a little arbitrary as to where we, where we draw the line. you know, you'll see, I mean, anytime a sign is given, I expect that the other team is trying to pick it off. And anytime the other team's giving a sign, I expect that we are trying to figure it out or pick it off. Um, And whether you're talking and, and, base runners, they're constantly peeking in, trying to to figure out. I mean, Ryan, you were saying, you know, you see the Nats uh, infielders going in and changing signs with the pitcher all the time. It's because anytime you have a runner on second base, usually the signs completely change because that runner now has a clear view of what the catcher's doing. And you can't be as simple as throwing down a one for fastball because they'll communicate that to the batter. Uh, And what's, what's funny is everybody does it, everybody expects everybody to do it, but if they know that you've on now everybody gets mad if they know that if if they know that that runner on second is communicating uh pitches to the batter now all of a sudden uh someone's gonna get hit you know our words are gonna be uh exchanged and that that part never i, I never understood i never understood that um if your signs are so bad that they're pickable then you you need to do the work you don't need to get mad at the other team. in my mind
1: right I
0: I think that's well said. Okay, guys, I, I do want to get to one more topic this week if I can, and uh, we don't ha- we're bumping up a little bit against time. But uh, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about the Houston Astros before we get out of here. Uh, certainly, they're going to be a big factor in the draft uh, tonight, as we mentioned a little earlier. They've got two picks in the top five. They've brought up Carlos Correa, and is it Vincent Velasquez? Just yep. in the last couple days. They're at the top of the division right now. As I'm looking at the standings, they are uh, 34 and 24. They're three and a half games up on the Rangers, who are a little bit of a surprise, and five and a half up on the Angels. Um, I'm gonna start. Let's start with Ben. Just uh, thoughts on the Astros, I guess. Just throwing it out
1: there. Yeah. For starters, it's it's really the whole American League is kind of backwards, like especially the AL West. So. Basically, the Athletics are at the bottom, followed by the Mariners. And, like, if you told me that those were you're basically your one and two to end the season, like, I, I, you know, I, would, I wouldn't I would even uh, think about it. You know, I, I'd definitely buy onto that for sure. Yeah, the, the Astros basically with a lead in first place, like a notable lead. Like, three and a half games is three and a half games, right? That's not, you yeah. know, they're in, in a tie I mean, or something. The
0: division's almost in inverse order of what you would have expected.
1: Yeah, especially with, in it coming to the year two, there was all the talk about the Astros basically making the most strikeout prone lineup, basically you know, that's almost ever been created, and I guess that does, but, you know, obviously that does come with home runs, too, so that's basically the reason, one of the reasons they are in first, that I guess the thinking that strikeouts don't really matter, you know, if you can, you know, get ground balls, which some other guys have been doing, and and hit them out of the park, which is pretty easy to do in Minute Maid, then you can be successful. And I guess they're at a point where, you know, their lead is sizable, but, you know, we're only, what, like a, just over a third of the way through the year. And just like, basically, we're looking at the AL Central, and the Twins are in the first two, and, and nobody thinks the Twins are going to stay there. So basically for the Astros to, if they're really thinking about, you know, not only the future, but the basically September or, and are they going to be there at the end of September? You know, they needed to make some moves. So seeing Korea, I, I didn't expect to see Correa until probably like early September. And I wasn't too familiar with Velasquez, but him being like one of their top, you know, two or three prospects, maybe after a hell seems pretty crazy too. Um, and then I'm sure, you know, there's going to be some coverage tonight and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit too, but basically having two top five picks because of, because of you know whatever and Aiken, Akin so that whole Aiken injury story, you know, they're quite a bit of youth coming up, and with two top five picks, you're basically putting quite a bit of youth and skilled youth right back in.
0: Yeah, and I think I'd love to pick up right there if I could. I think it they they become a very interesting team like like you were kind of alluding to. They're now they're thirty four and twenty four. So I mean you can't. Unlose those thirty-four wins, you know, in fifty-eight games. There's still a lot of time left, but you know, Oakland's eleven and a half out. The Mariners are eight and a half out now. I mean, that's a lot of games to try to make up in a hundred and whatever the number is—five, eight, whatever the num- the math works out to be. And as we kind of alluded to with the draft tonight, they're going to get an opportunity to add certainly two of the five best prospects, but th- they could really add four, five, six, eight players to an already stacked system. Does that allow them to go out in a month or maybe even less time and go add another big pitcher, a Cole Hamels, for instance, or another bat that maybe they could keep for a number of years? They did it, you know, this offseason, I believe, you know, trading Ruiz to get uh, Gaddis. I I find them very interesting what they're going to do the next, you know, certainly tonight and certainly the next three days in the draft. But what they're going to do in the next Call it two months to get through the trade deadline of what this team's going to do and and where they're going to end up on October first.
1: Yeah, and I and I wonder if it's a if, we, if there's another Moneyball book coming out soon about because I know you know Lou now and the team's basically one of the big sabermetric gurus of basically of this current generation. So. And,
0: and how unique is it that a year ago they were on the cover of Sports Illustrated as you know the 2017 uh, World Series champions, I believe it was. Then three months later they were kind of – I don't have a nice way to put it. They were in the outhouse. I mean, they had just lost Aiken. Everybody was struggling, and everybody thought the Cubs were the model organization. Now six months later or eight months, whatever it is, now all of a sudden the Astros are at top of the division. They've got two top picks and a pretty healthy farm system. It's just – Baseball is a funny game, I guess is what I'm trying to say.
1: Yeah. I can agree with that.
0: Scott, any, any thoughts? I know maybe
2: you're a little, a well, little bit more remote yeah, from this. but Yeah, no, I know. Well, as, an, as an A's fan, it's, it's definitely pain, painful to see that the the Astros have, have come into their own so quickly um, and that the A's have done the exact opposite. But uh, you know, without getting too deep into the... The Astros, as they're currently constructed, I think. I think the more interesting angle here is, uh, to me, is the bigger picture of the Astros basically drew a line in the sand, and said, "We're going to do it our way," and we're very upfront and, you know, maybe in ways arrogant or cocky about how they, you know, were negotiating with their draft picks or how they were handling their roster. Um, and they were, I think, for a long time, they were kind of getting scoffed at and, and, um, you know, at least plenty of doubters on how they were doing it. Uh, maybe they were alienating their fan base. All that kind of stuff was being tossed around, and you know, if, if this if this holds, you know, I was I've been an AS fan long enough to know that no one's gonna no one's gonna really buy in unless you actually win a championship. There are still doubters of Billy Bean no matter what he does. But if this holds and the Astros really do turn it around and become the toast of baseball after being so dreadful and just really being committed to a like you know kind of a Cold and calculated way of going about their business. Uh, it, it can it can really I think mi- send a pretty strong message for for how this should be done, and uh, and and maybe be a, a little bit of a I won't say a final blow, but but close to a final blow to that kind of old school style of, of thinking and 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 a, uh, a big push to just kind of modernize the whole the whole sport.
0: I tend to agree. I think this could be a very interesting case study in 25 years if this works.
1: Yeah. If I can add one more thing, too, I I do agree with what Scott's saying. But yeah, so if they let's say they end up fading a little bit and maybe like getting a second wild card and maybe they lose the wild card game, you know, just like the A's did last year. I don't know how much of an effect that's going to have. I think it needs to be maybe they win a pennant, you know, that pushes the needle like a. Notably more. Oh, I uh, agree. I think you've got to win a but, playoff series. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
0: At least I, I, I'm not sure you need to win a title. I might disagree with Scott's point about Billy Bean, although we're living it, so he's probably right. But I, I definitely think you've <laughs> got to at least win playoff series to, to legitimize yourself. Sure. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. Um. Okay. Uh, last question. I do want. I did want to ask this before we get in there. So where does Houston finish. How many wins and what place in the division do they finish? And as we've said a couple times, we're looking at it at thirty four and twenty four right now. Start with uh we'll start with the A's fan. Start with Scott.
2: All right, so so what they're on pace for what, around a uh, hundred wins right now? Am my is my math off? Uh, about a third, third of the way through the season they have thirty four wins. Is that where we're at?
0: That's that's pretty close. Yeah. Give uh, or take a win or two, yes.
2: Yeah, I'll go ahead and say they finish at uh, with with 96 wins. Um, I think I think they're for real. Maybe they fade a little bit and don't stay on pace what they're doing, but uh, I I'm really not terribly impressed with the other teams in the division, and uh, I don't see any any reason why they can't continue to beat up on on the Rangers, A's, and, and Mariners, um, and just
1: go with them. Ben, same question. So yeah, I, I sort of did some math there while we were talking. So well, that's not fair. <laughs> I know, right? I'm teasing. So, to, to get ninety, they need fifty-six. They basically need to go fifty-six and forty-eight, which seems pretty easy to do. So maybe maybe fifty-eight wins, so ninety-two overall, and I, it, it, I don't want to say they're going to take the division, but it looks that way. Wow. The AL being just horrible in general this year.
0: All right. Well, I guess I'm going to be uh Perry pessimist here. I'm going to go with, I think they finish up with 87 wins. I think they're going to play just about 500 ball from here on out, a little underneath. So, uh, and I still think that gets them a wild card. I, I still am expecting a hot streak from the angels to eventually capture that division, but uh, I'm amazed that they are 10 games over 500 at this point and, and, uh, they're going to continue to you know surprise me from here on out so i've been wrong already and i'm going to keep being wrong i guess is the way to say it so <laughs> all right guys uh i think that's a great week i think we're going to cut it right there i'd love to give both of you guys a spot once again to you know plug whatever you want to plug uh twitter everything like that so let's start uh, once again we'll go alphabetical with ben
1: and uh ben yeah, Ryan, well, thanks for having me. And I'll I'll plug myself again, B Suissa on Twitter, and hopefully some more stuff coming on Bench of the Pen in the next few weeks. And one more thing I actually wanted to plug was one of my favorite players, Paul Goldschmidt, sort of in the mix to basically set the non-Barry Bonds intentional walk record record in a season. So he's at 15 right now and he needs he needs 46 to get the non-Barry Bonds record. So, you know, all the best to Paul. <laughs>
0: Very nice.
1: Uh,
2: Scott? Yeah, Ryan, thank you again for, for having me. I always, always enjoy um, these discussions and just and really just being a part of Banish to the Pen in any way possible. Um, and I hope to have some more posts coming soon. Uh, yeah, I mean, my Twitter, again, is SL underscore Cush. And, uh, and my team's Twitter is CC Baseball. So I uh, you know, hope you guys can, can follow us. And I know we had a number of people after the last podcast reach out. And uh, ask for baseball caps and that kind of stuff. And always happy to oblige where I can.
0: That's very cool. So uh, thanks, Scott and Ben. Uh, great job coming back on the show. It was great having you. I thought that was really, really a great hour of baseball talk. And we covered a lot in a very short amount of time. So great job, guys. Uh, Coach, good luck on the recruiting trail. And hopefully you find some uh, really talented players on campus in September. Thank you. And Ben, uh, hopefully your Blue Jays start playing a little better
1: baseball. Yeah, we're just going to you know, stay off the turf, right? We'll yeah. win some games.
0: <laughs> so, guys, great week, and uh, I hope to have you guys back on the show very soon.
2: That's right.
0: And that was episode 23 of the Banished to the Pen podcast with Ben Suiza and Scott Kushner. I would like to thank them for coming on, and I would also like to thank, as I do each week, uh, all the hard work being done by the writers, the contributors, technical staff, editors, Either everybody either that you know their name or the people behind the scenes that you don't a lot of people are really doing a lot of hard work to put out a very quality product every week so good job guys pat on the back job well done this episode is a wrap i am your host ryan sullivan at natsgm.com on twitter reminding you be nice to your fellow listeners